Today's reading is Luke 6, 27 through 36. Jesus said, But to you who are listening, I say, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. When your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've just heard the words of Jesus as recorded by Luke. They were read to us just a moment ago. He says to love your enemies. He says to bless those who curse you. And my question to you is, if you're a follower of Jesus, what's your gut response to those words? What's your gut response? Is Jesus serious? Or are those words simply an ideal, kind of like, you know, it'd be good to eat six servings of fruits and vegetables every day, but we know that, and we might agree with that, but we, when push comes to shove, we really have no intention of doing that. Is Jesus really serious? What does he really mean by these words that we hear Luke giving to us today? Well, that's what I want to explore with you this morning as we continue our focus uh, that we began at the beginning of the year, which is a a focus on living a life that blesses others. And for those of you who are new to grace, we began the year with this focus on attempting to live more intentionally. And, And I asked the question, what if by the end of 2016, you could look back on the year and see tangible ways in which you have gifted others with life? Would that be a compelling thing for you? Would that be something that you want to step into, is to have a life that that gives others life? Because it's more than simply attending church. It's more than simply receiving information. It's more than just going out and living like everyone else after attending church. If that's all this is, then why are we doing it? But it's really about stepping into practice. And maybe if there's a category of Christians called Christian activists, meaning people who don't just hear things and not do something, but people who actually do something with what they hear, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about stepping into practice, specifically the practice of blessing others. And realizing that in that practice, we are partnering with Jesus in that practice. When you step into that practice, that's a practice where Jesus shows up. So if you want to see Jesus more active in your life, step into this practice of blessing others, and you'll begin to see Jesus show up in ways that are phenomenal to watch. 
And that's what we've begun to do and we've begun to talk about here as a, as a, as a community of people. If you look at Jesus' life, you see that really Jesus' life is all about blessing people. You could summarize his life as, in three words, Jesus blessed people. The beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry is it's bookended with, with Jesus blessing people. He walked around and he, he put into people's lives, he gave people the, the favor and the good intentions of God for them. In fact, that's, that's largely, if you look at the Gospels, you see Jesus doing that again and again, bringing God's favor into people's life, bringing God's good intentions for people into their lives. So what is blessing? Well, we saw from Scripture from in the Old Testament that, that blessing is life that comes from God. It's gifted by God. It's life that, that gives life. It's life that extends life. It's life. So when you hear the word blessing, you need to hear the word life ringing out because that's what the scriptures put that's how the scriptures define blessing it's it's life so how do we bless others we saw two weeks ago it begins with realizing that life is a gift begins with realizing that life is a gift and it really i think it really begins with with facing the question are we going to fulfill the negative stereotype that many people have outside the church of christians being people who hoard life and then judge others for not having it? Are we going to be people who hoard life and then judge others for not having it? Or will we be life givers by blessing others? I love this quote by Fred Rogers. Yes, Mr. Rogers has made it into the Sunday morning church service. He says, the real issue in life is not how many blessings we have, but, how, but what we do with our blessings. Some people have many blessings and hoard them. Some have few and give everything away. It's a beautiful, beautiful quote. Dallas Willard describes the practice of blessing as a projection of good into the life of another. And then two weeks ago, we looked at the practice of how we begin to bless others. And we looked at five ways. And and one of the things that just by way of review that I suggest is it really begins by noticing people. And you really have to get out of the I world, meaning your iPhone, your iPad, your I everything, all the, the stuff that is really about being absorbed in my own life and what, you know, posting myself all the time. And, and really, it, it, to begin the life of blessing others, it, it means being aware of where you are and who you're around. Again, another quote by Fred Rogers. He says, I believe that appreciation is a holy thing, that when we look for what's best in a person we happen to be with at the moment, We're doing what God does all the time. So in loving and appreciating our neighbor, we're participating in something sacred. The reason why I bring up Fred Rogers is because he's a Presbyterian minister. So even though he did trolleys and things like that, that, um, and it was a wonderful show for kids, but he was also a Presbyterian minister. He understood a lot of good stuff that was interwoven into into his show. And there's some beautiful things that he said. But this whole issue of noticing people and appreciating people. Now, that's wonderful when you're around people that, that you like to be with, when you're around your friends, when you're around the people you get along with. But what do you do when you're around people who wound you, who mistreat you, who find ways to annoy you? Might be people at work, might be somebody in the home. What do you do with those people? And what might Jesus have in mind when he says, love your enemies and bless those who curse you? 
Now, just to set the context for the text that we heard read to us today, this is not some pithy, feel-good saying that Jesus gives that you, you, you might see on Instagram or on, that might be tweeted out. You know those types of things that you see all the time? I do. All right, I'm having a monologue up here. Nobody else has seen those. <laughs> Come on, you guys, help me out a little bit today. When you talk, you want to have like a little bit of, yeah. Um, this is not some kind of a pithy saying because... These were hard-to-receive words as Jesus gave these words to his largely Jewish first-century audience because they had real enemies. And their real enemies was, was Rome. It was the Roman occupation. They were living in a land that had been promised to them by God through Abraham. And yet now, they were, this land was occupied by the Romans. This map gives you, if you're not a history buff, there's a little bit of history. There's the Roman Empire around the first century. The, the orange is, is the, the totality of, of what Rome was occupying at that time. And you see Judea over there in the corner, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. So here were people who were living under the thumb of these oppressors. They were heavily taxed. They had a puppet king who had been installed. It wasn't the, 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 the great king that God had promised that would be in the line of David, that was not the king that was sitting on the throne of Jerusalem. And so these people, when Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who curse you, they instantly had in mind, are you talking about these filthy Romans? And so it was very real for them. It was very real. And it felt like slavery in Egypt all over again. Now, as I was thinking about this text, it caused me to ask the question, who might our enemies be today, right? We're not occupied by the Romans. We're not occupied by anybody. So who might our enemies be today? It caused me to to reflect on my own personal life, like who might my enemies be? And and one of the things that it, it stirred up was my earliest recollection of having an enemy goes all the way back to fourth grade at Morgan Park Academy in Chicago. Morgan Park Academy was uh, formerly a military academy. It started in 1873, and we lived right next door to Morgan Park Academy. In fact, in preparing for the sermon, I did a Google satellite search because <laughs> I wanted to see the house where we lived. And there's this giant grass, grassy quad that was out there in, it, it, that still is there today at that academy. And we live right next door. So on the weekends, we went out on this quad to play. We didn't have TVs. Now, obviously, we didn't have Xbox or any of that stuff that people occupy their times with. So we went out and played games, games like Red Rover. Does anybody know what Red Rover is? Oh, a couple of people do. That's awesome. All right. Not Twitter or Instagram, but Red Rover. That's great. Um, so we were playing Red Rover. I have this distinct memory of playing Red Rover. And we were having a wonderful game with all the friends. And I'm in fourth grade. And some, I think it was a sixth or seventh grade kid, came over the kind of this grassy knoll and came down into our playing area. And this guy started inserting himself into the game, and he was, it was, as he was breaking, you know how you hold the hands, he was breaking through those hands, and he was doing karate chops on the arms to go through. And we had asked him several times to not do it, and I got more specific and asked him with some threats twice to not do it. And he persisted in doing it. And there was a lot of girls, and I guess I was probably being heroic as a fourth, fourth grader, you know. It makes the girls want to be with you, I think. Um, And so I had warned this guy twice, and finally I was getting so irritated with this guy not paying attention. 
I distinctly remember seeing a brick off in the distance. I picked up a brick and I went after him and he took off. He didn't come back. He didn't bother us again. Now, I don't know if that says something about me that I basically find solutions and I make sure they're permanent solutions or something like that. But that was one of my earliest memories of having enemies, an enemy, and, and then it began, I began to ask myself, okay, so what about today? I don't do that as a normal rule, find bricks and chase people around town with them, but who might my enemy be today and who might your enemies be? You know, and I was thinking it's easy to find, perhaps to, to locate cultural enemies like ISIS or perhaps political enemies like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Hillary or Bernie or a political party. Or maybe it's some kind of a celebrity enemy where it's easy to vilify somebody like Kim and Kanye or Justin Bieber or Nickelback or something like that. I mean, <laughs> I mean come on, nobody likes Nickelback in here, do they? You wouldn't admit it anyway in a group this size. <laughs> no, you don't like Nickelback. I hear that all the time in my family. Or it might be a, or somebody at work. It might be your competitor at work that has become the enemy for you because of the, the need to compete. But these might be grouped into what one writer has called pixelated enemies. And I like that term, pixelated enemies. Because he says that, that by and large, these people aren't anybody that we... They're people we share a relationship with. We really don't know them, we've never met them. So in other words, we're hating pixels when we hate them. Because all we really have is an image of them that we've come to hate. I thought that was very, very helpful. But Jesus says, look a little closer to home. And I'd like to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 10 if you, in your Bibles. And there's one underneath your seat if you don't have one or you don't have an app that has a Bible app on it. Um, it's page 815 in the <clears throat> blue Bibles underneath your seat. And Jesus says, look a little closer to home for your enemies. Mark 10, 34 to 36. Mark 10, 34 to 36. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now he's talking about that in context of allegiance to him, but he's saying, look, Oftentimes our enemies are a lot closer to home and the people we're called to bless are not Kim and Kanye or people in North Korea or Syria. I mean, most of us will never go to North Korea or Syria and will never meet Kim and Kanye, but we will encounter people who will mistreat us, people who will annoy us, people who will wound us in life. And Jesus says, these are the people that he's pointing out are people we're supposed to, to bless we're supposed to, to love them. And it raises real tensions. Because these people are often the hardest people to love in the, and to bless because they're the people that are closest to us. And it's easy to love people who are at a distance, people you never have to come in contact with. Maybe even people who've wounded us, but they're you know, out of sight, out of mind. But it's the people who are closest to us that make it hard for us to put these words of Jesus into action. So how does this work out in practice? That's what I want to get at in the remaining time I have with you. How, how can followers of Jesus bless their enemies? Well, back to Luke chapter 6. He offers a why. Jesus offers a why, not simply a how. And, and Simon Sinek gets at the, the power of answering the why question in his groundbreaking book, Start With Why. He says that most people in this book, he says that most people start their... They, they, 
use the how question in their approach to life. It's always about how do I do something as opposed to starting with the why question. But he says that, that great leaders and cultural influencers, people that have really made a difference in the world, have typically been people who started with the why question whether it's the Wright brothers or Steve Jobs or whoever, and he gives a lot of examples in this book, he talks about the power of the why question. And he gives the, uh, the golden circle. It begins with why, then moves to how, and then to what. And he says that the true innovators always begin with why, and they move outward to the what question. But the non-innovators typically be- begin with the what question, then the how, and finally, if they ever get around to answering the why question, that's the last part. But Jesus, interestingly enough, answers the why question in Luke chapter 6. And he gets the motive. Because if any of us are going to do any of the things that Jesus tells us to do, there has to be an answer to the why question. Why? Why should I do it? And so Jesus gets at that. Why should we bless our enemies? Look at Luke 6 and verse 36. Tucked into the passage that was read to us today, Jesus says in verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Why should followers of Jesus bless their enemies? Because this is the way God is. He is merciful. And this shouldn't be news to us, right? This shouldn't be news to us. We should know this from our own experience, right? This shouldn't be something like, oh, I never knew this before. We should know this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should know this from your own experience. This is why Jesus is such good news. One of the reasons is because through his life and death and resurrection, we have been adopted into God's family. Galatians 4, Romans 8. It says that because of what Jesus has done, we have been called sons and daughters of God. Can you believe that? Have you gotten used to to realizing that, that you and I are named by God as his own children? When he sees you, he says, oh, you're my daughter, you're my son. And he delights in saying that because of what Jesus has done, because God has been merciful toward us. Because of Jesus, we're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer alienated from God. Listen to uh, Colossians 1. Verse 21, Paul says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He says he has reconciled us through the death of Jesus. It means that there's no, there's no barrier between us and God anymore. He is He's removed the alienation and now that we can come with full confidence knowing that God is pleased with us, not based on our performance, not based upon our intellect, not based on our achievements, but simply because this is what God is like. He is merciful toward us. As a result of that, Jesus says in John 15, 15, that he calls us his friends. So he looks at us and he says, if you're in Christ, if you're by faith linked to, to God through Jesus He looks at us and he says, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're no longer alienated, and you're my friend, Jesus says. God is merciful. Why are we to be merciful? Why is it that we're to love our enemies? Because this is what God is like. This is all part of God being merciful to us. Someone has said the reason Christians bless their enemies is because the nature of the gospel is to convert 
enemies to friends. That's what God has done for us. He has, con- he has taken us and we were in a position of being alienated from him and he's moved us into the place of transforming us into friends. Do you believe this? Do you believe that? Do you, have you experienced it? You see, that has, to, that has to go beyond your mind. That has, to, that has to resonate deeply within you. Otherwise, it will be easy to retaliate when you're wounded. Look at what happens when you're wounded and look at your instinctive response and that tells you the degree to which this, this mercy of God has, has settled deep within you. Because that's the thing that will allow you to respond differently than just with retaliation. So that's the why. What about the how? What about the how? How do we bless our enemies? Well, back to, to Luke chapter 6. If you have your, uh, your text open to Luke 6, if you're looking down at those words that we saw today, beginning of verse 32, Jesus gives a list. And my natural response would be to list them in this order. To pray, to bless, to try to do good, and then after doing all those things, I might get around to actually loving that person. And it might sound godly, but it's exactly the opposite order that Jesus gives. It's interesting that Jesus reverses the order. And he says, love, do good, bless, and pray. And that's the order. And I think it would be easy to start with the prayer because we could kind of remove ourselves and say, well, I'm just going to pray for the person. I'm not going to encounter them. I don't have to have any real, you know, upfront, close interaction with them. And that's what love would involve. But Jesus puts the prayer thing last, and I'll get to that in just a moment. And what strikes me about this is that the ways of Jesus are often, they often go against what our natural instincts are. And they go against conventional wisdom. So if you think you know how Jesus is always going to want us to respond, look again, because he often flips the tables on how we think we should respond in life. And he turns it upside down. He says, no, here's a different order and here's why. And he does it here as well. And why does he do that? Because it's a supernatural response. The reason why Jesus sticks it in this order is because it requires the Spirit of God to love our enemies. That's not something instinctually any of us want to do. But it's in that place that we can expect the Spirit of God to show up and to stir within us something that is very different than the way we would naturally respond towards people. So if you, if you feel that it's, it's got to be based upon your feeling toward a person or your attraction toward a person and, your, and, and that's what love is all about, think again. Jesus is going to give us his spirit in those moments to stir within us a supernatural response to produce the love and the blessing toward our enemies that he wants us to do. So when we step into this supernatural response, it's based on, on desiring the good for someone, not the good found in someone. And oftentimes that's all we can see is we, we don't see the good in someone and so we're repulsed and so we turn away and we curse them instead of blessing them. But the Spirit wants to produce within us a desire to see God's good for this person. And that's a supernatural response. That's not something I instinctively want, but something Jesus can produce. 
And I think it comes back to, for me, as I was looking at this text, it's, it's kind of a reminder that we're, again, I have to be reminded that we're all on the receiving end of God's love. We're all on the receiving end of God's love, not because of our achievements, not because of our character, but simply because God has chosen to love us. Isn't that good news? God has chosen to love us simply because he wants to. And we see this in Jesus. You look at Jesus and you see what God is like. And maybe if that's the only thing you come away with today, look at Jesus and you see what God is like. And you see Jesus going around and and putting into people's lives God's favor and God's good intentions for them. And he's blessing them. And he does it at great cost to himself. I love what uh, Miroslav Volf says. He says, when God sets out to embrace the enemy, the result is the cross. On the cross, the dancing circle of self-giving and mutually indwelling divine persons opens up for the enemy. That was, that was when the first time I read that, I was like, wow. So here's this picture of God and, this, and this, the triune Godhead loving each other and giving to each other and enjoying each other. And, and it's, it's kind of this dance where they're, where they're this eternal dance that they're having. And they open up the dance to embrace the enemy. In the agony of the passion, the movement stops for a brief moment and a fissure appears so that sinful humanity can join in speaking about the cross. He says, see John seventeen twenty one. We, the others, we, the enemies, are embraced by the divine persons who love us with the same love with which they love each other and therefore make space for us within their own eternal embrace. That was beautiful words. That comes from his book, Exclusion and Embrace. I heartily recommend it. So when our hearts are transformed by Jesus, we can love, we can do good, we can bless because we desire the good for other people. We desire the good, God's good, even for our enemies. I love what Martin Luther King said, the great quote, he says, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. And when this is part of our operating system, we can step into blessing our enemies. We can project the favor and the good intention of God into their lives. And finally, this is where prayer comes in, and I'm going to end with this. If you look down at uh, Luke 6.28, he says, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Now, seriously, why pray for your enemies? Why pray for your enemies? What's that all about? And I thought I knew, and I was going to impose my thinking upon the text, which is not a real good idea to do, but sometimes we preachers do it. And I, I sat back and I thought, what is in this business of prayer? And all of a sudden it struck me that left to myself, my prayer will be about imposing my will upon God. You know what I mean by that? I've got an enemy, I've got someone who's bothering me, somebody who's hurt me, and so I go in prayer to God because I'm supposed to pray, and I say, God, would you do this, this, and this toward this person? Or would you do this, this, and this toward me? You know what I mean? You want something to be different. You want, you want them to quit treating you that way or you want them to get justice or something like that. And so it's easy for me to impose my will upon God in that moment. And here's what surprised me in this whole, in this whole preparation for this sermon. And this may be the piece that some of you might be waiting for that God might want to give to you. 
In Romans 8, it talks about the fact that as we pray, we often don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit prompts our prayer. And it's great conf- it gives us great confidence that when we pray, even when we don't feel like praying, we don't know how to pray, the Spirit is present. And it's in the Spirit's presence that it's possible for our own human agendas to stop. It's the Spirit's activity that creates the stoppage of our hu- human agendas and allows the Spirit to interrupt our normal monologue. And that's the reason why many of us have stopped praying. We're tired of doing monologues. And all we hear is our words banging around in our own skulls. And it's just a monologue. And what I was challenged with was this notion of prayer as a giving over to God. Prayer is a giving over to God. Allowing the Spirit to take us into conversation with God where we then listen to God's desire for that person. So the, the monologue stops, and because I recognize the Spirit is present, I then listen before God for what His desire is for this person. That's a different posture. Very different posture, very different activity. And I want to give you some space right now to just listen to God. For me, not just pray and us just continue with you know, singing, that kind of thing. But it's very possible that as you were sitting here today listening to me talk that a person has come to mind. It may be a spouse. It may be a child. It may be a parent. It's possible... I remember, I mean, I distinctly remember, we have four children, they're grown up now, but I remember, so this is for you parents out there, I remember many times where I said, I love that child, but I don't like them. Because they had become for me an annoyance enemy, probably. You can get to that place as a parent. And so maybe somebody has come to mind. It may be a roommate. It might be somebody at work. That in the course of me talking about this, God brought somebody to mind today. Listen to him. And then what I want you to do just for about 60 seconds is to practice this posture of believing that the Spirit can show up and show you what God desires to do in that person's life. Drop the human agendas drop the monologue, and just listen to God for 60 seconds. So would you do that? Would you join me? And then I'll pray. Before I pray, I was out walking on Friday, and um, I was praying over this, this sermon, and it was so distinct that God gave me the words, release the right to not be wounded. Release the right to not be wounded. And as you think about what I've talked about today, if those words apply to you, release the right to not be wounded or the expectation to not be wounded, that you may be stuck in life because that's where you are. And God wants to work in your life.
Let's pray. Father, I ask for your spirit's continual movement today as we present ourselves before you and seek to have your heart revealed for the people that we are interacting with who often are difficult to love. And I ask that you would free us to be those people who who really see your desire for people, your mercy, your grace, your abundant love that has been shown to us. May we have the eyes to see how much you want it to be true for other people as well. And I ask that you'd use us as conduits of your love and your grace and your mercy that we might bless others. For the sake of Jesus' testimony in the world, we pray. Amen.